Our text this evening is uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, beginning at verse 11. Hear God's word, 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. It is a common thing, sadly, for professing Christians to say things, especially in our day and age, that imply that doctrine and holy living are at odds with one another. Along these lines, people say things like, well, I don't particularly care for doctrine. I'm more interested in how to live as a Christian, and I don't need a bunch of head knowledge. I want to know how the Bible applies to my everyday life. And over against that way of thinking, the Bible is very clear that the teachings of the Bible, the doctrine of the Bible, the truth of the Bible, and everyday living very much go hand in hand. And in fact, this evening's text of the passage before us assumes that there is a relationship between the doctrine of Christ's coming and how you live. In these verses, Paul is sharing with the Thessalonians And with us, because the Holy Spirit has inspired these words, has had these words put down for us to read and to study, and in these verses we are being shown the content of Paul's prayers. And in these verses we read of several wishes that have been a part of his prayers. The first concerns his desire to visit the Thessalonians, and the second wish is related to the first and has to do with the sanctification of or the the working of God uh, to to make his people holy, he's he's praying that that work will continue among the Thessalonian believers. Uh, More specifically, his desire is that they grow in their love. And why is this? What is the goal? Well, Paul's prayer is that by growing in love, they will then be found blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul teaches a close connection between the Lord's coming and our holiness. Scripture makes this very same connection in other places. One of the main reasons Scripture gives for why you and I should live holy lives is the knowledge of Christ's coming. For instance, 1 John 2 verse 28, it says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame. At his coming. What do you believe concerning the Lord's coming? Though you might might not be able to point to particular Bible verses, because most of you have grown up in the church and you've been exposed to a lot of the, the, the Bible's teachings on the coming of the Lord in many settings, whether at Sunday school and sermons and Bible study, on the radio and conversations with other Christians. Um, You've heard a lot about the Lord's coming, and because of this instruction, you know that it is the same Jesus who was crucified, who then rose from the dead, who is now reigning in heaven, who will one day return to this earth. He will return as judge, and all people, 
will stand before him, including those who have already died. On that day, those whose bodies are in the grave will be resurrected. And with the coming of the Lord, the history of this earth as we know it will come to an end. The Lord's coming, every person's eternal destiny will be announced. God's people will experience the fullness of eternal life, and those who have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ will be sent to eternal destruction. You probably know all of these things, but what you may not realize is how your beliefs about this important event affect your everyday lives. Your belief about the Lord's coming does affect how you live, whether you realize it or not. Because the doctrine of the Lord's coming is important. It, it, in fact, it lies at the heart of Paul's message, really, in his first epistle to the Thessalonians. We've not come to the, the passages that deal very specifically with the Lord's coming, but notice already in chapter 1, verse 10, Paul has made reference to the Lord's coming. He says there, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath of come. And in, uh, then in chapter 2, verse 19, it says, um, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? So Paul in this epistle has a number of topics on his mind as he writes, and yet we find him again and again returning to the subject of the Lord's return. And this is probably in part because the apostle himself was constantly thinking of his life in relation to the Lord's return. But I think mostly because after Timothy's report, Paul realized that the Thessalonian Christians have some mistaken notions about the Lord's return. And eventually we will talk about the weaknesses in, in their beliefs regarding uh, the Lord's uh, coming when we come to those relevant parts of, that, of the epistle. But notice for now at here, that here at the end of chapter 3, Paul is again returning to the topic of the Lord's coming. And Paul's desire for the Thessalonians is that they will be found blameless in holiness at the coming of our Lord Jesus. Paul brings up the subject of the Lord's return in connection with holy living because Paul considers the, the coming of Christ to be an incentive, to be a motivator to holy living. If a person has never been taught about the Lord's coming or if a person refuses to believe the Bible's teaching on the Lord's return, that person is going to live accordingly. Well, how is the person who ignores Christ's coming going to live? Well, that person is essentially going to, he's going to live how, however he pleases. He's, he's going to engage in sin and he's not going to be concerned about it. For why should he be worried as long as he has convinced himself that there isn't going to be any kind of judgment day? Why would anyone be concerned about sin if we are not going to be held accountable before God? It should be apparent to all that if Jesus is still in the grave and can never return as judge, then we can all live a life of rebellion and we can, can engage in whatever sin we want and we're going to get away with it. But if you've had any kind of Bible training, you know that the Bible teaches a coming judgment day. There's a day coming when the Lord Jesus will return. All men will stand before him and will have to give an account of their lives. Jesus is alive and Jesus is the one who has been appointed by God with the divine power and authority to judge all mankind. 
these truths are clearly taught in Scripture. Matthew 16, verse 27, for example, says, For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Matthew 25, verse 31 When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And the result is that we will be judged according to the fruit of our lives. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And uh, this last scripture and others like it can very easily be misinterpreted and misunderstood to be teaching works righteousness. Since we're going to be judged according to our works, some would say that this means that our good works are, are what will merit eternal life. But scripture never teaches such a thing. It never teaches that we merit or earn eternal life through our works. Your works can and will be used to judge you only because your works will be clear proof of whether or not you belong to Christ in a saving relationship. They're they're proof of whether or not you have faith. For when the Holy Spirit regenerates and indwells an elect sinner, that sinner will have a love for Christ out of which will flow good works done to his glory. In other words, true good works, works done in obedience to Christ's commands out of love for him and for his glory, these works are proof, they are evidence that you have a changed heart. They are evidence that you are in a relationship with Christ in a saving way. So no works can ever earn God's favor, and yet again and again we are told in Scripture to lead holy lives. And why is this? Well, again, this is not because works are how we are going to be saved. In fact, any works that are done with the intention of trying to earn uh, eternal life through them, as far as God is concerned, those are evil works. The only way we can be saved is by faith in Jesus Christ. The only way we can be saved is by looking by faith to the one that God has sent. Jesus, by his atoning death on the cross and by his perfect life, He has merited eternal life for all who repent of their sins, who receive him, who rest upon him alone as Savior from sin. And so the reason why we are urged to holiness, why holiness is put before us as a goal, is not to save ourselves by our attempt at perfection, but this is a goal put in front of us exactly because we're not perfect. The Lord calls us to lives of holiness because we still sin. And we are reminded and prodded by God to live a holy life because there are these many temptations both within and without that pull us toward evil. And we can't earn eternal life through even attempts at holiness. But it should be obvious that God doesn't want us to sin. Sin is displeasing to God. And it brings glory to God when you live for him. And that is what he calls you to do. He calls you to a life of gratitude for his grace. And... uh, Even as God calls us to holy living, you and I must never imagine that we can live these holy lives that he calls us to in our own ability, by our own strength. God's call to holiness is actually part of how God makes his people holy. His call is the means by which he separates his people from the world. For if you are one of his sheep, 
You will hear his voice calling you to holiness. And you will want to do his will. And so it happens that throughout the word of God, he calls you to do good works and then presents various incentives and various motivators to get his people to do good works. And by a work of the Holy Spirit, God brings it about so that you indeed take these things to heart and you respond. And what is being brought to your attention in this evening's text is that one of the main incentives in scripture to doing good works is the knowledge of the Lord's return as judge. Rather than his coming being a reason for fear, uh, rather than his coming being something to dread, Scripture assures us as believers that Jesus will actually reward those. He will reward you in the, for the ways in which you have lived faithfully for him. So as judge, Jesus will actually reward his people's good works. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.8 says, He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as uh, passing through fire. We have also 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart's then each one will receive his commendation from God. Or Galatians 6, 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So why does Scripture hold out to us this hope of rewards? Is it so that trusting in ourselves, we might work our way into heaven by our own merits? Is that the idea? Well, absolutely not. These verses are based on the fact that as one of God's children, you have such a love for your Savior that you want to be found faithful at his coming. Nothing should be more meaningful and more exciting to you than to hear Christ say at the end of your life, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. The purpose of Scripture telling you that there are degrees of reward in heaven based on your works is not to stir up self-centered desires and to put you into some kind of a competitive spirit to see if you can beat out others for the greater rewards. No, rather the assumption is that you want above all else to dwell in heaven with the Lord. And the assumption is that you want above all else to glorify your Savior now and for eternity. And heaven is about fellowship with God and about enjoying God and serving God. It's never about glorifying yourselves. And yet in heaven there will be the personal benefit of sharing in Christ's glory. And there's certainly nothing wrong with wanting to share in that glory as much as possible. And the assumption is that as a Christian, you want to experience, you must want to experience God in the fullest possible way. And so the assumption is that you are going to want to pursue holiness in order to reach the highest level of reward in heaven that God's grace allows a mere creature In other words, it's not wrong to want the greater rewards of heaven when those rewards are all about the experience of God and his glory. 
And the fact of the matter is that the more you live for Christ, the more your life is going to show forth God's grace on judgment day. In other words, it's good to seek rewards because the greater the rewards, the more God is glorified. And thus Paul's desire for the Thessalonian believers is that they would be found blameless in holiness at the Lord's coming. This ought to be your goal in life as you await the Lord's coming. At this point, something needs to be said in order to avoid any kind of misunderstanding. Paul understood, as you must also, that there is a certain sense in which you, as God's people, are already blameless. Uh, To be blameless before God, the word here means really to be without any violation of, of God's law. It would mean that he holds no sin against you. As he looks at you, he sees nothing by which to judge you worthy of common uh, uh, condemnation. And the, the state, we're going to speak of it now here at, as the, the state of being blameless and holiness before God is the same thing as being justified. Justification is an act of God's grace whereby the merits of Jesus Christ are put to your account by faith. Jesus died on the cross and lived a perfect life in order to give righteousness to his people and uh, giving us that, that righteousness, that, that, um, that uh, account um, before God uh, as being without sin. That's the same thing as making us blameless in God's sight. And the gospel is that as you lay your sins on Christ by faith, as you receive his merits by faith, you become blameless before God in terms of your sin record. But having said all of that, it needs to be clear that Paul, in the verses before us this evening, is not talking about the blamelessness of justification. He's talking to believers who are already saved because they already have faith in Christ and are thus already justified. They don't need the blamelessness of justification Paul's wish is for something to take place in those who are already on their way to heaven. Paul's wish is for the Thessalonians to have hearts established, blameless in holiness. And um, this is clearly then a wish for their sanctification. It's a wish for that ongoing work of God whereby we become more and more holy, whereby we become more and more like Christ. And almost always when scripture talks about our holiness, the reference is to our sanctification. Literally, sanctification, the word comes from the word for being made holy. And so it's important that we understand what holiness is. Holiness has two aspects to it. Holiness is a separation from sin and a consecration to God. So a separation from sin and a consecration to God. And these are, these are two things that you and I need to be constantly reminded of and challenged um, to implement in our lives. So first of all, there needs to be a, a separation from sin. Now, if we did this perfectly, we would never sin. And uh, practically speaking, this means we do whatever we can to not sin. In your mind, in your body, in your life, in every way, you If you're pursuing holiness, you stay away from sin. And separation from sin in this way means staying away from so-called friends who drag you down spiritually. 
It means keeping yourself out of that situation where you may be tempted to sin. It means exercising self-control and discipline over the desires of your body so that you do not use your bodies in the service of sin. Separation from sin means taking action to keep away from anything that's morally and spiritually polluting in order that you may do what is right. So the first part of holiness is a separation from sin, but the second part is consecration to God. It's really the other side of the coin of separating yourself from sin. When you separate yourself from sin, you're turning from sin, but you are turning yourself towards something else. You're joining yourself to something new. You're joining yourself to the opposite of that sin. And so in other words, when you put off sin, you must put on Christ. You must put on righteousness and holiness. And so in separating from sin, you consecrate yourself to God. And a consecration to God means dedicating yourself to serving God's glory. You see yourself as set apart unto God. And so you are seeing yourself as belonging to him. And if you're consecrated to God, you're constantly thinking about how you can use your life, use yourself to do that, to do that which is pleasing to God. And so if you're consecrated to God, you view all of life in relation to the God that you love and serve. And so Paul speaks of being blameless in holiness as the goal, as something that he anticipates the, the believers in Thessalonica experiencing. The whole purpose here is so that God may establish their hearts blameless in holiness. And that blameless in holiness is nothing less than perfection. It means complete and never failing separation from sin and consecration to God. And if you think about it, it's something that is never going to be achieved in this life. But it is something that you will pursue to the best of your ability if you love Christ. Which brings us to the important point of our text that this holiness has very much to do with your heart. It has to do with the things that you love. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 11, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. The holy living flows out of a holy heart, a heart that loves Christ above all else. To be blameless in holiness, your heart must be separated from sin. Your heart must be consecrated to God. And we need a heart that is established in this holiness. Because the only way we will be blameless is in the way of consistently and constantly and every day without fail living for Christ. And so holiness is not only about cleaning up your life on the outside, but it's actually, first of all, about cleaning up your life on the inside. And when it has taken place as it should and will one day by God's grace, it's not going to be a cleaning up of your life just most or some of the time, but all of the time. And uh, what gives evidence of a heart growing in holiness is a heart growing in love. Which is why the Apostle Paul in verse 12 is first of all concerned that the Christians there in Thessalonica would grow in love. He writes, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. It's when you're growing in love that you have the kind of heart that is being made holy. 
Though the Thessalonians have love to a certain degree, Paul is saying they need to increase and abound in this love. I think we need to recognize the same thing as regards to us. Uh, Hopefully you all say that you have a love for Christ, a love for his people, a love for sinners, um, a desire to see them spiritually blessed, but we all need to increase and abound in this love. These words, increase and abound, they mean almost the same thing. They're joined together here for emphasis. The word increase means to superabound, to exist in abundance, to make to increase. And the word abound means to abound, to overflow, to excel, to have an abundance, to exceed a fixed number of measure. And it's not enough for these believers, and it's not enough for you, that there is some love being manifested in your life. Um, that's not enough. This love needs to abound. It needs to superabound needs to increase. Um, There is the love that you have for your Savior. There's the love that you have for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. There's room for that love to increase and abound. And uh, that love needs to grow. And also, there's also room for growth in terms of whom you love. Is the circle of people that you love growing so that your love is abounding for all? Or do you love only those who are lovable and kind and nice? Or do you also love the unlovable, the outcasts of society, even your enemies? Paul and his companions are an example to the Thessalonians in how their love went beyond just those of their own Jewish race to include even those pagan, idol-worshiping Gentiles there in Thessalonica. Is your circle of love growing and abounding what is undoubtedly implied is that this love for others will grow when there is a growing love for Christ. Like that's clearly implied. We love because Christ first loved us. And as Paul thinks about the Thessalonians, and as he thinks about their need for growth and holiness, it's his desire to help them in this growth by being there to minister to them. So the desire expressed there in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Direct our way to you. Direct our way is a request to make the way straight, to make it level, literally to prosper it. Paul understands that it is Jesus Christ who is in charge of whether or not he will be able to visit these beloved saints, which is why he has prayed that the Lord Jesus will pave the way, so to speak, to his coming to them. At the same time, Paul understands that Growth and sanctification in the lives of these Thessalonians is not going to ultimately depend upon him. And I base this point upon part of verse 12, and the last point there in verse 12. Um, our English translation doesn't capture the sense of the Greek that begins verse 12, um, where the Greek says something like, but on the other hand, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. So notice the flow of thought. Now may our God and and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. But on the other hand, would be kind of the idea here of the Greek, but on the other hand, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. And so that translation would tell us that Paul is contemplating the fact that the Lord may not direct his way to them. And if this is how it will be, Paul still has hope for the Thessalonians. 
Paul would be glad to be an instrument in God's hands to help the Thessalonians, but Paul understands he's not absolutely necessary. Paul seems to be rather easygoing in all of this because he understands that spiritual growth is ultimately a matter of God's work in the heart. And so Paul prays, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, that, or so that, he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. It is God alone who makes his people, who made the Thessalonians, who makes us blameless in holiness. And just like Paul could not change the Thessalonians, I cannot change you. And the passage this evening is a prayer because only God has the key to your heart. At the same time, Paul's prayer desires have been written down as a call from God to greater love and holiness in your Christian life. And Paul wants the Thessalonians to know what he prays for them so that upon hearing these things, there will be these desires stirred up within them to be blameless in holiness. As a minister of the word this evening, I also present to you these same concerns in order that you would be stirred up to holiness. So pause this evening and think about how the Lord is going to return soon and how you're going to one day stand before him and give an account of your life. Would it not be a great thing if the Lord Jesus returned and found your life marked by the Christian love of a life separated from sin and consecrated to God, to him? Does the Lord's coming motivate you to want to do better in your Christian life? Does it bother you to imagine the Lord returning to find you actually engaged in, in sin? It's true that you and I will never be found perfect in this life. Only when Jesus returns will he by his power eradicate sin completely from your life and my life and give us a perfect love for him and others. Only after he returns and completes this work of sanctification will we be totally separated from sin totally consecrated to God. But what is your response right now as someone who is here on earth, Christ has not returned, you're not perfect, and what is your response to the fact that you're never going to be perfect in this life? Is your response, well, then it really doesn't matter what I do. Is your response, well, I'm just going to give in to sin. Do you figure that fighting sin is pointless? Or is it your desire, despite your sin and failures, to do all that you can to be found blameless in holiness at the coming of the Lord because you love your Savior? These questions are meant to get at your heart. How much do you appreciate Christ's death on the cross, paying the debt of your sin? How much do you appreciate the grace and love of Christ shown in his dying for you? How much you love others, how much you desire to be blameless in holiness is all in proportion to how much you love Christ. And I can't make you love Christ, but I can tell you that he has died for sinners. He's he's taken upon himself the debt that you could never pay. He has earned for us eternal life when we deserve condemnation. And I can tell you these things, and I can tell you that a love for Christ will evidence itself in a life of holy living But really, only God can impress you with the truths of what I've said. And may it be this evening that each one of you is finding that God is touching your heart with the preciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ.
with the greatness of his love, the greatness of his sacrifice on our behalf. And may the Lord be at work in your heart so that, at his, so that his coming is a motivation that compels you to work toward being blameless in holiness. Notice that the establishment of holiness is going to take place at the Lord's coming. But this is something that will be established in the hearts of those who love, who love Christ, who out of love for Christ love people. This is something that happens to those who have already the work of God going on in their lives. It's not that holiness is something brand new at the return of Christ, but rather at the return, Christ will bring to completion what's already been going on. And if we are those who have been pursuing holiness, if that process has begun in our lives, we will then be those who are established in holiness at his coming. But if we've not been pursuing holiness, if we're not being separated from sin and consecrated to God in our hearts, in this life, then we're not going to be established blameless in holiness at the Lord's coming. This is something that is only for God's people. This is talking about Christ finishing a work that he's begun. And so holiness is the goal. Separating ourselves from sin, what a glorious thing that God would begin this work, separating us from sin, consecrating us to him, and all out of love for what he has done for us. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this work of holiness that you've begun in our lives. Lord, we have a love for you. We have a love for your people. We have a love for sinners where we desire to see them come to know you as we have. Father, we also recognize that we do not love as we ought. We recognize that we do not hate sin and we're not separated from sin to the degree that we ought, even though, Lord, our sin grieves us. And we ask that you would forgive our sin and we want to do what is right. And Father, we, we are consecrated to you we, in the sense that we love you, we want to serve you, and yet we know that our hearts still go after other things, the idols of this world, the idols of self. We're not consecrated to you as we ought. And so, Father, we long for this day when Christ will return and we will, when we will be established in our hearts, blameless in holiness. Lord, um, we pray that you will complete this work we pray that we might even see this work happening in abundant ways, even in our, our life here on earth. But Father, may we not lose hope as we continue to sin, as we, we sense that we are not holy as we ought to be. Lord, may we continue to rely upon Christ. May we continue to rely upon that promise that what he begins, he brings to completion. And uh, so, Father, we look forward to Christ and to what he has yet to accomplish uh, for our salvation we thank you that that salvation has begun, that we're blameless in principle in the terms of our justification. But Father, we long for that day when we will be made perfect. And we thank you that that's part of what Christ has earned for us, something that we can look forward to. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.